1 Peter 1, 17 through 21. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with imperishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was manifest in the last days for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Amen. Thanks, Katie. You guys can be seated. Good morning, everyone. Uh, hey, so if you're if you're new, I just want to um, uh, introduce uh, something to you and and just remind all of you who've been with us uh, throughout this series. We do have this uh, uh, new sort of function that we've been uh, testing out through this series, and that's if you have any questions at all uh, uh, about our church or about uh, the the teaching or maybe uh, maybe a verse that you're going through that you would like some more insight, some more commentary on. Uh, we are committed as a church to come and, excuse me, alongside you and helping you grow in your faith, gain more knowledge in God's word. And so uh, we have this uh, uh, sort of number set up uh, for you to text at any point during this teaching series. It's 949-229-3779. So 949-229-3779. A few of you have used it already, uh, and uh, that just kind of helps us um, know uh, what kind of things we want to make sure to touch on throughout the series and what kind of additional resources uh, that we want to develop for you. Uh, And so if you are, whether you're here in person or tuning in online, uh, I encourage you to utilize that as a resource. Now, um, we are continuing on our series uh, through the great book of 1 Peter. Uh, and just as a quick recap, uh, Peter is, is, is written by the Apostle Peter to encourage a number of discouraged, tired, restless Christians to find hope, to find real hope, lasting hope, what we're calling resilient hope. That's sort of our, our, our banner, uh, our theme for this series in First Peter, resilient hope in a restless world. How many of you can resonate with that phrase this morning? This is a restless world. These are restless times to be in. The good news that we have from God's word, specifically here in the first Peter, is that those who are in Christ can have resilient hope, a deep hope in the midst of a restless world. And so uh, let me go ahead and uh, pray for us, and then we'll go ahead and get started in the text. Um, really quick here, I just saw out of the corner of my eye, uh, the Striflers are here with little Merritt Edward, his first service. He's with you, right? Okay, cool. Uh, so welcome, you guys. Uh, and I know the Purdies are streaming in from home. Uh, baby Dean was born, uh, was that this week or last week? I think it was earlier this week. Um, so anyways, welcome to you guys uh, streaming online uh, through through that. So um, let me pray for us, uh, and then we'll go ahead and, and get started. Uh, Father, I'm just grateful for this church family. Um, how it is in 
in the deepest sense of that word, a family, a spiritual family uh, that you've drawn together, that you are growing up in faith. Uh, and I'm just thinking of the ways that you have um, uh, just united us in the faith and, and just all the many baptisms that we've been able to, to celebrate over the last couple of years uh, for new people uh, just a, a couple of weeks ago here in this spot. Uh, and we're just thankful, Lord that we can gather as a family to worship you, to lift you up, to celebrate new life in Jesus. Uh, we're grateful for the Hatters for opening up their home uh, so that we can worship freely in this place. And uh, I just pray, God, that uh, you would use this short passage of Scripture to do a mighty work in our hearts and our lives for your glory and for the good of others. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> So uh, in our text, as Katie read this morning, 1 Peter 1, verses 17 through 21, uh, we've got two points that we're going to unpack. The first is I want to unpack this idea that God is a father and a judge. All right. God is both a father and a judge. Now, this is important for us uh, to wrestle with. This is an important context, uh, um, um, sort of context. Uh, 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 con like I just idea to unpack. Uh, for verse 17 says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. <clears throat> and what he's getting at here is that God is both our father and he's the one who judges impartially. Now, why is that an important thing that we need to grasp? Why is that an important concept? There's that word I was looking for. <laughs> concept uh, that we need to wrestle with. And that's because our tendency, our tendency is to vacillate between the one and the other, right? Like, like, like some of us, um, we, 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 we might lean a lot on the side of, hey, God is my father. He has adopted me into his family. He loves me. He forgives me. He accepts me. And look, that is good and true and beautiful. And we don't in any way want to subtract from that, right? But we cannot miss with that the idea that God is also a judge, who will judge us impartially according to each one's deeds. That means he doesn't play favorites, right? He doesn't show partiality to one group versus another based on uh, the century they were born in, based on their, their nationality or their political party or their uh, social status or the color of their skin, like he judges impartially according to our deeds, all right? But on the other hand, there are some who, uh, uh, maybe in more of a, like a fundamentalist camp, who all they wanna talk about is how God is a judge. Right? Almost like a fire and brimstone, sort of like, hey, you gotta watch out because God is judging you now. He's gonna judge you then at the second coming, you know, at the end of time. And 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 again, that is true. And that is important. And we don't want to shy away from that either. But we don't, in our effort to uphold that, want to also miss the fact that God is a father who does love and forgive. 
and who adopts ill-deserving sinners into his forever family through Jesus Christ. You see, Peter here, he's saying that if you want to grow in hope and in holiness, which is what we talked about last week, how resilient hope also comes with growing in holiness. And if, though, if you want to grow in hope and in holiness, then you, need to, then you need to recognize that God is both your father and the one who judges impartially. Now, I want you to notice when he says that the father is also the impartial judge there in verse 17, I want you to, to, to just recognize that our intimacy with God should never be an excuse for disobedience, right? There might be a tendency in us to say like, hey, because God loves me, because he accepts me, then how I live, what I think about, what I indulge in does not matter. And that's just not true at all, right? Our intimacy with God, our relationship with God should never be an excuse for flagrant disobedience. God is our heavenly father, and yet we revere him as holy and awesome. This is a serious thing. This is why Peter calls us to be sober-minded, which we looked at last time, right? Be sober-minded. The idea here is that holiness is not a joke. It's not something to mess around with. Our conduct matters, and it will be judged by a righteous and impartial judge. And he continues on in verse 17, and I want you to see this here. This is really fascinating. He continues to unpack just the bigness and the awesomeness of God. He says, look, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, then conduct yourselves with fear. Conduct yourselves with fear. Now, that is a fascinating command, is it not? Right? He's saying, look, if God is your father, if you know who he is, if you know that he is not only your loving father, but also just the great and mighty judge, then, hey, conduct yourselves with fear. Now, that might strike you kind of odd, right? Because you might be thinking here, does this mean that I'm supposed to um, constantly uh, just be afraid of God? That I'm supposed to be as scared of God? And the answer to that question is, is, is a little bit more nuanced than just a, a black and white, like, yes or no. You see, what he's talking about here is this biblical concept that we see repeated again and again and again throughout the scriptures called the fear of the Lord. The fear of God. Now, admittedly, this idea that Christians are in some sense to fear God is an unpopular thing, theme in our day and age, right? Like when we, when, when you, when the, sometimes when we hear this idea that Christians need to have the fear of the Lord, uh, we think like, man, that's crazy. Like, why do we need to fear God? I thought he was a God of love. Does he not say that? As a matter of fact, there are Bible verses that say, hey, God is, does not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. But you see, this idea of the fear of the Lord shows up again and again in the scriptures. And there used to be a day and age where the fear of the Lord was considered a compliment, right? Like if somebody was described as a God-fearing man or a God-fearing woman, that meant that that person was moral in character and also humble in posture. 
But the popular belief among Christians today is almost like, hey, you know, God is this big old meanie in the Old Testament, right? Uh, but when, once he has a kid, he sort of softens up, he becomes nice, he mellows out in the New Testament. But you would have to ignore huge chunks of the Bible if you want to avoid this topic of the fear of God. It's in there hundreds of times. As a matter of fact, you look at Proverbs uh, 9, verse 10, it tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it says, and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. In other words, if you want to know anything at all that is good true, beautiful, and wise about the universe that we exist in and the God who made it, then you need to start here. If you want anything at all resembling wisdom, then you need to start here by understanding what it means to fear the Lord. And look, the Bible says that fearing God is not incompatible with loving Him. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah 11, it tells us that Jesus is, there's a prophecy speaking, speaking about Jesus, and it says that his delight, Jesus' delight, the forthcoming Messiah's delight, is in the fear of the Lord. Imagine that. Jesus' delight, something that brings him joy, is the fear of the Lord. Now, how do we make sense of that? How do we make sense of that? You see, fear is not always a negative concept, and it most is its most elementary, base, uh, foundational level. Level to fear something is to acknowledge or to give credence to that thing's power over you. All right. So, whatever kind of fears you have however reasonable or silly they might be, whether you're afraid of heights, afraid of speaking before people, or you're afraid of clowns, right? No matter how real or, or, or superficial that fear might be, when you feel that fear, what you're doing is you're acknowledging, this thing has power over me, right? And so when we talk about the fear of the Lord, what we're doing is we're acknowledging, we're giving credence to the immense power that God has over us, right? It's not about being scared. It's about a reverential sort of fear. You see, the person who's scared of God has something to hide. But the person who fears God has nothing to hide from him. As a matter of fact, the person who fears God is terrified to be away from him. All they want to do is is be embraced by him. All they want to do is be near him. All they want to do is be found in him. It's embracing his heart. It's loving the things that God loves. It's hating the things that God hates. It's having his heart and wanting to be intimately near uh, with him. That's what the fear of the Lord is. It's not being scared where you want to run from him because you've got something to hide. It's be, where you want to actually run to him because you realize, man, this is the safest place to be. And if this God, if this judge is also my father, man, I want to be in that family. I want to be by his side. 
I don't want to be anywhere else. That's what it means to fear the Lord. And the second thing we see here in this verse is that if we want to grow deep in our hope and forward in our holiness, then not only do we need to embrace the fact that God is both father and judge, but we also need to see, number two, that the father's son, Jesus, was judged on the cross in our place. He was judged on the cross in our place. And this makes God's fatherliness and the fact that he's judge of the universe all the more beautiful. The fact that he judges his son on the cross in our place. And we see this as uh, he continues with this idea here in verse 18. He tells us, uh, you know, you need, we need to be walking in the fear of the Lord, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways and inherited from your forefathers. Now, really quick, I want to talk about that word ransomed. What does it mean to say that we in Christians have been ransomed? You see, that word ransom here is, is, is actually, a, it, it was an old ancient prison term. It's this Greek word, leutron, leutron, which means to loosen up. All right, to loosen up, like to loosen someone from their chains, right? That's what, that's what ransom means. It's specifically uh, a ransom that was paid in exchange uh, to loosen up the chains of a captive so that they could be released from captivity, all right? So I want you to think of this, uh, this idea of like a ransom note, right? Like if you ever... Uh, uh, you know, read like a crime novel or, or, or watch like a, you know, a, a movie, uh, you, you know that uh, this, I, you have a concept of this idea of the ransom note, right? Like when someone has been kidnapped and the kidnapper leaves a note and says, hey, look, we'll return your loved one if you pay me a $1 million ransom, then that means that that Victim who was kidnapped will only be released, will only be loosened from captivity through the pain of a ransom, through the pain of a big cost. In this particular analogy, that'd be $1 million, right? You see, a ransom, this idea of a ransom is that there's always a cost to it. There's always a cost that needs to be absorbed, right? Right, You're, you lose something in order to pay that ransom, and so when G, it's when Jesus says that He came to ransom us, He's really saying two things. There's two things being being taught us in that verse by the word, use of the word ransom. He's saying that one, that we are all held captive, and two, that He has come to pay the costly price to set us free. Let's take, a look, let's take a look at both of those. Just this idea that we are captive, all right? This is a fact that you and I, we need to reckon with. That apart from Jesus, you are not free, right? You might, you might feel free, but you're not truly free. You are captive to your sin nature apart from Christ. And the, that's a fact that we all need to wrestle with. The scriptures say that if you're a person who is uh, living with sin apart from the saving grace of Jesus, then you are not free. Any freedom that you might think you have is a mere illusion. And so the Bible says that apart from grace, we are all enslaved by, the Bible actually uses that term, we're all enslaved by sin, by idols, 
things that we replace with God or replace God with, uh, the law, uh, death, (laughs) they are all things that we are born as captives to. But Jesus came to set us free. He came to loosen the bonds. He came to lay down his life as a ransom for us. I want you to remember that powerful word, ransom. It tells us that Jesus came to pay a costly price to set us free. Because remember, ransom implies that there is a cost that needs to be paid. That word ransom doesn't just say that he pleaded and then we were, and then we were, our, 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 our uh, chains were loosened. That means that there was a costly price that was paid. And that price was that Jesus came to stand in our place, so to speak. And in, in, to stand in our place for our sins, to pay the cost of our sins. Now this is what theologians call penal substitutionary atonement. Right? A penal substitutionary atonement. In other words, there is a penal aspect to it. There is a legal aspect to it in which we were guilty. But Jesus took on that guilt for us. Substitutionary. An atonement. He atoned for our sins. He paid full the cross. He absorbed the cost himself. You see, in the ancient world, if somebody came to set a captive free, they would take on the payment of suffering themselves, right? If, if you wanted to come to a place where somebody was held captive and said, like, hey, I want to set that, this slave free, uh, then that slave owner would have to say, okay, well, then you're going to have to pay the cost, right? This person's paying it with, 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 with their life. And here, here's, here's the cost if you want him to, to, to be free, and there's a popular saying among preachers I think we mentioned this a couple weeks ago but there's a popular saying among preachers that Jesus died on the cross to stretch out his arms and say look this is how much God loves us that he stretched his arms out on the cross to say this is how much I love you now again in a sense that is, that is absolutely true. Like Jesus stretched out his arms on the cross in an expression of his love for us. But that is not the only thing that he did on the cross. If we just leave it at that, then that is a really tiny view of the cross. Because there's so much, so there's, there's, the, there's so many different ways that, G, that the Lord could have expressed love for us. All right? The cross is so much more than just a love note to God's people. It is so much more than a good example of sacrificial love. The cross, Jesus' death on the cross, it actually accomplished something. It actually did something. It actually paid something. I saw a headline a couple years ago about uh, a woman who, uh, there was this, this just nasty picture uh, with, that came with the article of uh, this, this woman's back, and she had like uh, these huge bruises and, and welts all along her, her back from sitting hunched over in this crazy massive hailstorm. I think it was either New Zealand or Australia or something like that. Uh, but it was this place that it was, it was really humid uh, normally, and so when the hail came down, it came down big. 
uh, and it came from from pretty up high. And so by the time I hit the ground and just gaining in in speed and momentum, uh, it was just destroying homes and trees and 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 it, like killing animals and and destroying cars. And this woman was like hunched over in a hailstorm. Now, if I told you that that this woman did that, she hunched over in a hail in a hailstorm just to prove to her child that she loved that she loved her child, just to prove her love to her child, then you would be like, dude, that's kind of weird, right? Like there are easier ways to show your kid that you love them than to, to go through that. But then if I told you that her child was just a small, vulnerable baby. And that the reason that she was hunched over in the hailstorms was to shield that baby from the storm, then that would mean something else entirely to you, would it not? Her act of love actually accomplished something. It wasn't just to say, hey, here's how much I love you. It actually accomplished something. Jesus on the cross absorbed the weight of our sins. Just like that, she, like this, this woman absorbed the weight of the storm in her baby's place. Jesus absorbed the storm of God's wrath in our place. He paid the ransom to free us. I love the way that the great John Stott puts this. He says, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. And the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. That's the beauty of the gospel. See, when we sin, we're putting ourselves in God's place. We're placing ourselves on his throne, a place that we do not belong. But when God chose to save us, he left the seat of his throne, the place that he rightfully belongs, and exchanged it for a cross, a place that he does not belong. And he does this to save us. He does it to save us. I want to unpack the magnitude of what this verse is saying here, what this passage is saying here with the following uh, verse. Verse 18, he says that, that Jesus did this. He paid our ransom not with perishable things such as silver or gold, verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He says this, 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 uh, this blood of Christ is precious because one, of whose blood it is. He's a lamb without spot or blemish, but also because of what it can do. It can accomplish what no amount of silver or gold can do, what no sum of treasures in the world can purchase, which is a single soul from captivity. It ransoms us. It redeems us. It brings us back to God. So what is Peter doing here? He's, he's, he's preaching the gospel. He's preaching the gospel in these verses. How, now, how does, how does the gospel fuel our holiness? How does the gospel deepen our hope? He says, live in the fear of God because you know of the precious, pricely, costly, powerful blood of Christ by which you were ransomed. Live with resilient hope because you know of the precious, pricely, costly, powerful blood of Christ by which you were ransomed. 
He says, don't live as if the blood of Christ were not precious. You see, the blood of Jesus does not justify our sinful choices. It justifies us as sinners. We're forgiven of past, present, future sins. Those who are justified in Christ, we now are free. We're we're no longer slaves to the old nature. We're now free. The chains have been loosened. We're free to walk in new life. Peter's not done telling us why the blood of Christ is precious. He continues on in verse 20 through 21. He says, He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. You see, if, if he says there that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. He was foreknown. This was the plan before the foundation of the world. You see, if Jesus, his person and work, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, then that means your salvation, your salvation was foreknown before the, 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 the foundations of the world. How precious is that? And if Jesus was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, then there is no room for doubting God's love for you and his plan for your resilient hope and growth and holiness. And how precious is that? And if Jesus, as it says, was raised from the dead and given glory, that is a vindication that is a demonstration of the unique preciousness of his blood. This is the man who is also God, and his blood was spilt for you. And if he rose from the grave, if he ascended on to glory, that is a foresight of what is also coming, of what is also given and coming for you. How precious is that? You see, if through Jesus you are believers in God and your hope is in God, then this blood reversed the most devastating effects of the fall, all the brokenness in the world, and now you belong to the true and living God. Do you see that this blood is precious. That God is not only the impartial judge, but he is the father who loves you so much that he is willing to give his one and only son for you, to bring you in. Do you ever think that your sins are too bad and that forgiveness for those sins requires to you to like sort of, yeah, you know, like uh, just put on a front and get your act together first? If so, then you don't really understand the preciousness of this blood. You don't understand the fear of the Lord either because you're minimizing his forgiveness. You see, some people think if I understand the fear of the Lord, if I'm living in the fear of the Lord, then that means I'm going to be like constantly scared of God. 
But no, if you're living in the fear of the Lord, then you have a great understanding of His forgiveness for you. It actually gives you boldness to be assured of the grace that is offered you. To minimize his forgiveness is to act as though his forgiveness is ordinary, just like that of any other person, or just like that of a make-believe God. But in contrast, the biblical fear of the Lord leads us to believe that when God makes promises too good to be true, they indeed are true. They indeed are true. And so what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Remember verse 13? Verse 13 that we talked about a few weeks ago. It says, um, Peter ends this paragraph where he began. He says, set your hope fully on the grace uh, of Jesus Christ. And it says here that he was raised from the dead and given glory so that your faith and hope are in God. It's like a hope sandwich, right? You got hope in the beginning. You got hope on the end. He's saying, look, let this gospel, let this gospel drive you to holiness. Let your holiness return you to the gospel. Let that gospel drive you to hope and to holiness. And let that hope and holiness drive you back to the gospel. We never graduate from the gospel. The truth is that our hope and our holiness is found in Jesus. If your hope is in anything else, then you will leave yourself disappointed again and again and again. You see, your job is not to work on you. He works on you. You and I don't have the power. His blood has the power. Our job is to abide in him. Our job is to trust him. Our job is to pursue the one who pursued us first. I want us to pursue deep hope and holiness knowing that we have been ransomed by precious blood. And as the Spirit tells us in verse 21, it is the knowledge of this gospel that enables you to be a believer in God and a hoper in God, a resilient hoper in God. Hope in Jesus gives us both a position, a standing to prepare for holiness. It gives us a nature that shapes our hope and our holiness, and it gives us the precious power and the fuel to sustain our holiness. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.